Welcome to the Weekly Deep Dive Podcast on the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we take a look at the weekly Come Follow Me discussion and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here in the studio with our friend and this show's producer, Nate Pfeiffer. What's up? Hey, Nate. How are you doing, buddy? Dude, I'm, I'm doing really well. Are you worried that uh, we released our uh, Jonah podcast too late last weekend? I, I think a combination between setting it out a little bit later than we usually do and, and the Thanksgiving holiday has made it so a lot of people might not have had a good chance to listen to it. If you haven't had a chance to listen to it, it's good. It's uh, it's one of my favorite episodes. I think we we had some excellent... I don't know. Jo- Jonah was a really good one. It was a fun one to talk about. I think it's maybe top five episodes we've done this year. I loved it. Worth the listen. Agreed. What are we talking about tonight? Tonight? Other than a bunch of people's names that I don't know how to pronounce. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about their names, actually. Their names oh. is probably one of the more exciting parts of this podcast. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, ne- that's how it tends to be at times with this podcast. Ne- Nehum Hab- um, Habakkuk. What? And Nehum Habakkuk and Zephaniah. Zephaniah. Zephaniah doesn't sound like a real name. I'm sorry. <laughs> These are great names. These are fantastic. And you know what? I learned something today about Habakkuk that I'd never heard of before. My mom said the way she remembers his name when she learned the the books of the Old Testament as a kid is they used to always call him Habakkukie. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I've never heard that before. It's just like the cookie monster. <laughs> yeah, Habakkukie. No, but Habakkuk... <laughs> let, let me... Let's start with the names, shall we? I mean, it, we might as well because I, I'm telling you that I legitimately could not, when I was typing it into the title for the episode recording, I was just like looking around like, <laughs> where did we come up with this? It's not Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Those are the best ones. <laughs> so I'm going to read in Nahum chapter 3, just a few verses. And and with this context... I'm, I'm going to ask you listeners, whoever's listening or new Nate, just, just guess at what Nahum could possibly mean. Okay. Here we go. Chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great way to open. Okay. It is all full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not, the noise of a whip, and the noise of the rattling of the wheels, and of the prancing of horses, and of the jumping of chariots. The horseman lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear, and there is a multitude of slain, and a great number of carcasses, and there is none end of their corpses. They stumble upon their corpses. Because of the multitude of the whoredoms of their well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts, behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and I will show the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame. I mean, that's pretty heavy, buddy. Yeah. There's a lot going on there, very visual. Yeah, it sounds like his name should be... El Shaddai. Thank you for giving us a reason just to put Amy right back in there. I mean, it's been in my head all day. I mean, I mean, it feels very Amy Grant for sure. But that is not what Nahum means. Any any guesses? Um, oh, I'm sure it's going to be the opposite. It's going to be like bringer of peace. Comforter. You're right there, Nate. Yes. <laughs> Such a comforting message. Oh my gosh, amazing. So, so, 
Amazing. What? I, knew, I knew it was going to be the opposite of El Shaddai as soon as we started talking about that. As soon as you brought up El Shaddai, I was like, watch this one be the exact opposite. Dude, it's, yeah, it's amazing. And so when we read through the book of Nahum, let's let's try to understand how how these words are comforting to anybody. Anybody, seriously. Okay. And, and off the bat, uh, Nahum, let's give a little context here. He lives, um, if, if we go into, he, he, he's after Jonah, and, and he's after Isaiah, and he's prophesying the fall of Nineveh. So it's the same message as Jonah the prophet. Jonah goes and prophesies the downfall of Nineveh. But in Nahum's case, Nineveh really is going to fall. They don't, they don't repent. They do get destroyed. So for the Jews, this message is quite comforting, and, and we look at it because in the northern kingdom, they were destroyed. And we look and say, well, the southern kingdom was, was saved, right? Hezekiah and, and the kingdom were preserved and they weren't destroyed. So maybe it's not as comforting. But here's the deal. Even though they were saved, they still had to pay a huge tribute to the king of Assyria. And, and so it was a, a big burden. Most of the cities, if not all of the cities outside of Jerusalem were destroyed, so when Nahum's prophesying the downfall of Assyria, it's actually quite comforting to the Jews because it's the downfall of their, their people. enemies. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So let's go to chapter one. Uh, the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. And, and no, that is not a prophet from Elko. I don't know that such a thing. Oh, totally. There's prophets from Elko. Driving through Elko at the, uh, it's not Carl's Juniors, not Hardee's. What is it? What's the uh, big? Uh, what's the the McDonald's there no, by the no, Maverick? No, no, that one's great though too. Though no, what's what's the equivalent of Carl's Junior? But the Hardee's? Har- no, no, it's the California version. It's where you can get like the two tacos. Anyways, oh man, I don't. know. There's a lot of profits from Elko. Every time we're driving out to the Bay Area, it's just like Elko. You know, that's a that's a staple. It's it's about halfway between here and uh, Reno, so we'd always have to stop there for That's gas. Right. That's right. All right, what do we? So so he's not from Elko, sadly. <laughs> I mean, he's an Elko shite, um, but that he, he's actually Jewish, and he's 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 from Judah. He's prophesying in Judah about the downfall of Nineveh, and and I, I'm sorry, I said Jewish. He's in Jerusalem. There's there's two main schools of thought. One group says that, that this Elkoshite actually means that he comes from the Galilee. Mm. And the reason that he's in Jerusalem is because Assyria destroyed his homeland. And so he's one of the refugees that fled from the northern kingdom down into the southern kingdom. So maybe even similar to Lehi. We look at Lehi's heritage, and he has the house that he lives in, and then it also has the land of his inheritance, as they're mentioned, almost two different things, that maybe his land of inheritance, the tribal land that he inherits is in the northern kingdom, but he was forced out and inhabits a house down in the southern kingdom. So, so maybe some similarities there. Another school of thought is that the Elkoshite, that this land is actually in Assyria, close to Nineveh, uh, but there's, I, I tend to lean more towards the Galilee. I don't think he was up in the Assyria areas, but he's prophesying down in Jerusalem and he's telling the people about the destruction of Nineveh. Cool. So that context, let's keep going. Uh, verse two is something that, that kind of 
stirred up some thoughts in, in my family discussion of, of the Come Follow Me. Uh, God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. And, and so God is jealous, Elkanah. What does it mean to have a jealous God? And, 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 and one of my children asked, like, isn't jealousy a bad feeling to have? And, and the word itself, yes, it does mean jealous. It's actually only used, this version is only found twice in the Old Testament, here in Nahum, and then in the book of, I believe it's Joshua, talking early on how the Lord God is a jealous God when they worship other gods other than him. And here he is, in, in these two cases, one case is the jealousy is in a marriage relationship Israel is his spouse, and Israel is serving other gods. So when his partner is turning aside to worship other gods, other deities, to to have a covenant relationship with another spouse, another husband, that's his jealousy. But then the other sense of this also is when another kingdom asserts themselves in his place. So here he is, the God, the husband, but Assyria is stepping in and telling them to worship them as if they were God, to give their tributes and pay their taxes and make their sacrifices to Assyria. And Assyria is saying, your gods mean nothing to us. They can't deliver you. Don't pray to your gods. Don't worship your gods because they can't save you. Only the king of Assyria can save you. So now you look at this again. This jealousy is the fact that another person is asserting themselves in his marriage relationship with his wife. And, and going back to the feeling of jealousy, uh, what, what, what was asked is, you know, jealousy, anger, is that an okay feeling to feel? And, and, and my take on this is every emotion is an acceptable emotion to feel. All emotions come from God, and you read about God having anger. You read about God having jealousy. What is not acceptable is, is what we feel them towards or how we choose to express those emotions or how we react with those emotions. Now, for example, the Old Testament calls out being jealous of your neighbor's wife, right? In that case, a feeling of jealousy is not appropriate, but if it's your covenant relationship and something is stepping in to take that, jealousy should be the appropriate emotion. And it is okay to feel jealous. And it is okay to feel anger. And then it is okay to act on those feelings to defend that relationship and to defend your, your wife and, and to take steps and take action to, to protect them. Got it. And it, I guess the natural progression to that discussion... When God starts, you know, as we move forward to here and he talks about the the destruction that he's going to issue there, when is it okay to fight? I mean, is that is that an appropriate thing to ask or when is it okay to 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 bear arms or or to be armed? And and I think maybe it's just worth reading one last scripture and then we'll move kind of on from this to the next thing. Romans chapter 13. And, and I love this verse, not this verse, but this whole little discussion. I'll start in verse 1. Let every soul be subject unto higher powers, for there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. So you're talking about these higher powers, and they're actually referring to the government powers, in this case in particular, Roman powers. 
and they're saying that the Roman legions, the Roman soldiers, are actually ordained of God, which is an interesting thought. Uh, verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not also be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to do thee for good. But if thou do not that which is, but if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. And I just look at this. This is a case where God is going to be angry, and he is going to execute wrath and judgment, and he carries not a sword in vain. He is going to smite the Assyrians for the evil that they've done, and this is an appropriate thing to do. And governments are also authorized, legal representatives, law enforcement, whatever the case may be, are authorized to use lethal force in executing the judgment of God. They just, I don't know, maybe maybe it's a discussion worth having, and maybe it's something we... I mean, I'd have to, I would have to really try to process a lot of that before I have an, anything worth discussing. All right, let's let's um, let's go to some of the acts of God. When they start talking about what he does, verse 4, he rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and drieth up the rivers. And when does he rebuke the sea? I mean, one, it, when we're talking about the sea and the water and the rivers, you can go back to creation. I think we've gone back to this story so many times. That's the beginning. He created it by the Spirit of God moving upon the breadth of the waters, separating the waters from the land and creating order. But then you see it in the same time when Israel is brought out of Egypt and he parts the Red Sea. And then he's going to talk about dividing the rivers, and you're going to see that again when the Euphrates is dried up by the uh, Cyrus to let the Jews go free. So that's, that's a start. Um, and it's going to talk about um, all the people that are going to get destroyed. Verse 5, And the mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before the indignation, and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His wrath, uh, his fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth him that trust in him. So not only is he able to destroy and and punish, but he also knows how to save and to preserve. And it's kind of interesting when they're talking about the hills melting at his presence and the darkness and the, and the blood and the fire and all of these things that we typically associate with the second coming. And I, I almost find a little bit of comfort in reading instances where these things have already happened and realizing that the Lord has still preserved his people through these things. This is not this, this terrible, calamitous thing that all of us are going to cease to exist, but there's hope, and that maybe some of the things that we're fearing that may happen are things that have already happened. Mm. Interesting. When you're trying to describe how the Lord destroys people at his presence, okay. and, and you're trying to understand the perspective of these ancients as they're writing these mm-hmm. things down, yep. I, find, I find the story of Sodom and Gomorrah amazing. And, and I think it helps lend a little bit of credibility to what God does and what they're attributing to God. Okay. So there's a site that, that they discovered on the east of Jordan and the southeast of Jordan, and they think that it's ancient Sodom just based on its location and also based on the amount of destruction 
that it experienced at the same time frame of when Sodom was destroyed. Okay. Uh, so we're talking about 3,600 years ago, and and the city, it's, uh, it's Tel El Hammam. It's 10 times larger than Jerusalem and five times larger than Jericho. So this was a fairly significant city in the ancient world that was destroyed. And they're, they're diving through these layers and trying to figure this out, and they're looking at how did this city get destroyed? Could it have been volcano? Could it have been war, warfare? Uh, we even talked about this, Nate, a little bit. When, when an army comes in and they don't want the city to ever come back, they salt it. They salt it. They, they put salt all over the ground so that no crops can go, and then just the city gets desolate and abandoned. So they're, they're trying to figure this out, and, and this is the scientific report that came back. The paper and scientific report makes the case that the city was laid bare by an airburst similar to the Tunguska explosion. Have you ever heard of the Tunguska explosion? Yeah, of course, dude. Everybody has. Yeah, like uh, 1908, an yeah, asteroid. obviously, dude. Yeah, 1908, of course, like the asteroid. <laughs> It didn't make it to the earth. It yeah, exploded right totally, before dude. it hits. Right up in the atmosphere, dude. It was bad news bears. Yeah, everybody knows that story. Trees were blown over. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> everybody everybody knows that story, obviously. So I'll, I'll keep reading the scientific report. I'm ready. Air bursts are huge explosions that occur in the air, possibly due to an object like an asteroid grazing Earth's atmosphere and bouncing out again without touching the ground. Okay. The Tunguska, the Tunguska event of June 30th, 1908, when a massive explosion flattened 830 square miles of Siberian forest, is believed to have released 30 megatons of energy, enough to level the city. It's not hard to imagine how an event like that could morph into a biblical story attributing a then unexplicable desire to the wrath of God upon a sinful people. And, and they go on to describe this. We saw evidence for temperatures greater than 2,000 degrees Celsius, which is 3,600 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, man, that just melt everything. Yeah. Yeah. Professor James Kennett of the University of California, Santa Barbara, said in a statement, examples include ceramics melted into glass and mud, mud bricks heated so far they bubbled. Oh, my gosh. Even today, temperatures like that are hard to produce. The area lacks volcanoes that might have been the closest Bronze Age cause of such heat. So they're trying to figure out, you know, what causes this heat. And um, I skip forward a little bit. I think one of the main discoveries is shocked quartz. These are sand grains containing cracks that form only under very high pressure. Quartz is one of the hardest minerals. It's very hard to shock. Um, as we go through some of these, these evidences that they found, nearby cities would not have experienced the direct effects Tal El Hammam did, but Kenneth's explanation for their abandonment has a particularly biblical ring. Tal El Hammam's destruction layer contains up to 25% salt in some examples and 4% on average. Centuries later, the Romans sowed their enemies filled with salt because it made farming impossible for generations. The salt was thrown up due to high-impact pressures. Hmm. And... Um, any, uh, any that hit the Dead Sea or its salt-laden northern shores would have thrown salt high in the air to be distributed across the region, affecting farming capacity around nearby settlements that escaped the direct blast. Jesus was salt in the earth. Um, yes. <laughs> and so think about this. If, if a blast hit and knocked salt into the air that salted the entire region, 
you could never go back and re-inhabit that city. That's right. And not only that, but what would happen to somebody who tarried, say, a little bit longer than they should have? Oh, they would be covered in salt, dude. They would be turned into a pillar of salt. That's incredible, actually. So if you're living in the ancient world and all of a sudden you see some massive object flying from heaven to the earth yeah. and and it salts the entire region and makes it so no one can go back, I mean, you can't blame a volcano. You can't blame anyone else. It's it's God. Do you know who it is? Who? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. Yes. Yes. Another another thing that I hadn't even considered in the ancient times, earthquakes. And and we, we, we know about earthquakes, and earthquakes are not quite as devastating today, I think, as they were then. Because you think about this, Nate, the idea that everybody had these oil lamps that were burning with fire. Oh, man. Yes. And probably a lot of, like, structures and homes that were made of things incredibly flammable. They did not have the same building codes that we have today. And there are time periods in, in corresponding with biblical events where you would have earthquakes all throughout the region in the Levant, in in Iraq, uh, ancient Iraq, so Babylon, Israel, Egypt, where you would have earthquakes. And if you have these oil lanterns that get shooken oh, off and fall, then it's oil and fire and flammable materials. And it's particularly dangerous in large cities where the houses are all close together yep. and joined together. And, and you don't have the capacity to fight fires like you did today. I mean, this isn't even that long ago. I mean, you remember like the big fires in San Francisco and New York and Chicago, Chicago and right? Paris. Exactly. Yeah, early on when we, we had a big fire in a big city, you lost a large portion yep. of the city. Rome, right? And they say that, Caesar fiddled while Rome burned. And it, it just, it took off. And, and, and so we enjoy a lot of modern technology today, sprinkler systems and, and fire departments and, and stuff that just didn't exist back then. And we didn't rely on oil and fire for our light source and our heat source that they did then. So what you're saying is, if you look at Sodom and the biblical account is, something from the sky big thing salt everywhere and basically burn the place to the ground are you saying that that's because an earthquake at the same time no 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 i'm sorry i'm actually i'm actually overlapping two different things here so one you have this weird heavenly object that that caused the annihilation of an entire region and salted it okay and and two you have this inexplicable moments when the earth would tremble and cities whole cities would burn down oh, okay and who's causing that right and and we don't have to look too far look at pompeii i mean what happened in pompeii and all these people that were just buried and in that case you actually have a destruction layer that was very well preserved you can see what was going on yep so when he starts talking about hills melting and the anger of the lord I I don't know. I kind of look at some of these verses and I don't I don't think of some unimaginable destruction that's awaiting us in the future that's just going to wipe out the entire world. I look at instances where this has happened in the ancient world and I look at it as them explaining some of the things that they were familiar with or experiencing that they've gone through. And so I I look at this not so much as 
impending doom that I'm going to be facing, but I find comfort in looking at, you know, a lot of these things are hard lessons that Israel's learned in the past that hopefully we've kind of reformed and improved upon in in today's iteration of Israel. Cool. Let's move on. All right. Um, you know what? In verse 13 of chapter 1, for now I will break his yoke from off thee. I think uh, talking about yoke is something that we could dive into, but maybe not yet. Let's uh, let's save that for New Testament when we I get agree. to yokes. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the last thing I want to hit maybe in Nahum is is in chapter 2. And let's uh, let's go down to verse 10. She is empty and void and waste, and the heart melteth, and the knees smite together, and much pain is in all the loins and the face of them that gather blackness. Where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion, even the old lion, walketh and the lions whelp, and none made them afraid? And remember the prophecy earlier that talked about Assyria and Babylon being like lions that went among and that tore their prey and none can deliver. And so as he's prophesying the downfall of Assyria, I find it interesting that he mentions the lions again. These lions that used to tear into pieces, um, so verse 12, the lion did tear in pieces enough for his whelps and strangled for the lion, and strangled for his lioness and filled his holes with prey and his dens with raven. But they're, they're, they're gone. Where is the dwelling place of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions that walk? And where, where are they now? They've been cut off. Verse 13, Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will burn her chariots in the smoke, and the sword shall devour thy young lions, and I will cut off the prey from the earth, and the voice of the messenger shall be no more heard. So going back to these lions are going to tear you up, but in the end the lions will no longer tear you up. And you see that fulfillment in the destruction of Assyria. And I just want to link that again with the very end of Babylon, what happened. You see Daniel being put in the lion's den, and the lion is no longer having power over Israel, over Daniel. They're delivered and, and they're preserved. Cool. And and maybe just one last message. Um, as you start to look at the devouring of of the people in, in Nahum when they're talking about Assyria, uh, you'll notice that a lot of the language that they use is the same language that they use when they talk about the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of Israel. And they talk about uh, exposing her naked, uh, her nakedness, uh, about taking her away and having her lay in the dust and all of this laid out. And, and, and the language is very similar. And remember, Nate, we were talking about Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, yeah. I just watched it again the other day. My four-year-old loves it. That's a great show. He wants to listen to it while we're doing puzzles just throughout the week. What a, what a cool kid. I know, but it's a good movie. It's a fantastic movie. Um, but when he makes the comment in there, like, hey, God, maybe you could choose someone else <laughs> next time. Yeah, you can. I know we're your chosen people, but could you occasionally choose somebody else? Yeah, it's great. So this is where Nahum as the comforter comes in is that it's not always God's people that get picked on. God is not a respecter of persons. Yes, the Jews did get picked on, but they kind of had it coming in a sense that they had turned away from him, and so he withdrew his protection, and, and, and they were buffeted by the world. But when they turned to him, here comes the comforter to deliver them, to protect them, but also the world 
who had rejected God, the world who had inserted themselves in God's place and made him jealous, now receives the buffetings of that just God. It's not just his people that he chastises, it's everyone. It's the world too. And and you look at, uh, even even in modern instances, at the in, injustice that the Jews suffered at the hands in the Holocaust uh, as victims, but then look at their persecutors, where are they today? They also were wiped off the face of the earth. And last, I know I keep saying this, this, this I promise is the last thing I'm going to talk about with Nehum here. When, when, he, when he mentioned the drying up of the sea and the drying up of the rivers, you got to think of this as, as a baptism. I know in the New Testament it references Israel being baptized when they followed Moses through the Dead Sea, Right? And if you're going through the waters of, of, of tribulation and this idea that you're going to be baptized in, in this sense, what follows a baptism of water is the baptism of fire or the comforter, the receiving of the comforter. So Nahum's message here is he is the comforter that follows their baptism, that follows them going through the water. And baptism, what is baptism a symbol of? Death. Baptism is a symbol of death. The death of the nation uh, being destroyed is, is, is kind of this baptism, but it's going to rise again. And when it rises again, the Lord is going to send his comforter, the, 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 the second baptism, the, the spirit. It's awesome. That's incredible insight. All right. Now we can go to have a cookie. I mean, have, have a, a cookie. Have a cookie. Have a cookie. And <laughs> do, you know what, do you know what his, mess, his, his name means? Hold on. Read me some verses. Oh, it's, it's going to be very similar. It's okay. uh, the Lord's going to be well. Let's, in, in chapter one, Habakkuk um, sees the destruction and the violence. So, see verse two: O Lord, how long shall I cry, and wilt thou not hear? Even cry unto the voice, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou not show? Uh, why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoil and violence are before me, and for their that raise up strife and contention. Therefore, the law is slacked and judgment doth not go forth. He's complaining about Babylon destroying the Jews. Uh, verse 6, For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. Does Habakkuk mean I'm not happy with the cook? No. no. It was worth a shot. It was worth a shot. Embrace. What does it mean? Embracing. Embrace the cook. I suppose so. Okay. So, and it's kind of interesting, the three prophets that we have here. So Nahum is the comforter. Habakkuk is going to be embracing. And then Zephaniah is going to be the Lord's treasure or the Lord treasures. And, and, And these are oddly comforting names dealing with oddly difficult circumstances. So where Nahum was prophesying the destruction of Assyria, Habakkuk is going to be talking about the destruction of Babylon. So chapter 1, he says, Lord, how come you showed me that Babylon is going to destroy Jerusalem? And, and so give us a little bit of um, context here. Habakkuk is going to live shortly before Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and, and Lehi and, and those people. He's seeing the destruction of Jerusalem, but he's also going to see their, their restoration towards the end. So chapter one, he's asking the question, Lord, 
you've shown me this thing. You've shown me the destruction of this people. And I have to ask why. It, it seems like a great injustice. What's the deal here? And then verse 2 is the Lord's response. And um, so Habakkuk says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I will stand upon my watch and I will set, um, set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. So that's that's the end of his question to the Lord. All of chapter 1 is him saying, Lord, you've shown me all of these things. How come? And now I'm going to stand on the watchtower and I'm going to wait until you answer me. I'll take my answer off the air. <laughs> That's the first I'll take my answer off the air sports radio, um, <laughs> political radio phone call right there, dude. So, so he's waiting for his answer. And verse two, and the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain unto tables that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry, wait for it. Because it will surely come, it will not tarry. And then he goes on to talk about the destruction of Babylon, just like Nahum had prophesied the destruction of Assyria. So these prophets are actually oddly comforting to Israel in the sense that, yes, you are going to get destroyed, you're going to be suffering, but there is going to be deliverance. I will comfort you, I will embrace you, I will establish you, and I will go to war and fight your enemies for you. And and that's that's kind of the, the message there. Okay. Habakkuk is is actually priestly class. Um and, and so is Jeremiah and Ezekiel, by the way. Chapter three, there's actually a song and it sounds like the Psalms, and you're gonna be seeing him like uh, for example, verse nine. Thy bow was made quick, naked, according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word, Salah. And remember, Salah is what shows up in the Psalms all the time. And he finishes it, verse 19, The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet, and he will make me to walk upon my high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. So he was a musician, and and he was able to, to perform in the temple. That was part of his duty. He was in the priestly class. And, and he would sing as, as part of his priestly duties. So that's his lineage, his, his, uh, who he is, kind of. That's, that's Habakkuk. Great. Let's get on to uh, Zephaniah. Zephaniah. Narnia. Zephaniah. And here's the interesting about Zephaniah. Verse 1. The word of the Lord, which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. I mean, I'm glad we got Hezekiah back in here. That just sounds like a lot of begatting to me. It is a lot of begatting, and they kind of misspell Hezekiah here, spelled differently, Hezekiah, but that is the same Hezekiah. And so what we're to learn, Zephaniah is actually descended from the kings, and, and so it's kind of interesting when you look at the Lord sending his message to the people to warn them, and he says by the mouth of two or three witnesses, it's not even two or three witnesses of the same type. He's sending the priest. Mm. He's sending the, the shepherd that's out in the fields from Bethlehem. He's sending from the king's family. Mm. He's sending everything Right, and, and it's kind of cool. When Christ is born, we're going to see this. We talk on the New Testament. He doesn't just send 
the, the lowest of the lows, the shepherds to go see Christ, but also the high of the highs in the sense of the magi and the ones that are wealthy to come. And it's just this, this full gamut that everyone comes and witnesses and bears witness and testifies. So the people of Israel, and, and so where Nahum was prophesying about the destruction of Assyria and Habakkuk is prophesying the destruction of Babylon. Unfortunately for the Jews, Zephaniah is actually prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem. And and he, you know, I I, I like to look at this and wonder if, if this didn't give inspiration to Lehi. Um, when, you, when you look in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, Gather yourselves together, yea, gather together, O nation not desired. And and you're interesting because Zephaniah is like the, the treasured one of the Lord, and yet he's saying, You are not desired. You've you've strained from him. Uh, verse two, before the decree bring forth, before the day pass as the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you, seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be you shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Hmm. So you think about Zephaniah, and here he's he's living, uh, prophesying from about 640 B.C. to 610 B.C. So he's done about 10 years before Lehi's leaving Jerusalem, and, and it's his prophecies that are inspiring Jeremiah and, and the other prophets of that time. And, and if you're at that time and you're trying to be meek and you're trying to pray that your city will repent and change, and you look at that prophecy and it says, Seek the Lord, it may be that you shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. I have to wonder if that's not what Lehi was also praying for. If this people doesn't repent, Will you hide me and my family from the anger of the Lord? Where can we go that we can be hid and not suffer these consequences? I like that. And they they, they talk about a lot of this and in, in, in saying, I, I, if you look at the headers of the chapters, at the second coming, all nations shall assemble together. They're looking at this as dual fulfillment. You obviously have the immediate fulfillment of the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians, but they're saying that this should also be a sign of of things that are to come. Um, I like, as we talk to the end of this chapter, when they're in chapter 3, when we're talking about the gathering of the people again, verse 14, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all thy heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Uh, the Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy. The king of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion, let not thine hands be slackened. And I look at this, and I see Israel and Zion kind of being described in one hand, and then Jerusalem on the other. And you, you know back in the in that that time you had the two kingdoms the northern kingdom of Israel the southern kingdom of Judah and when they start talking about Zion and and Judah i wonder if they're not saying Zion is in the north and Judah is in the south and i think of the prophecy that says out of Zion shall come the law of the lord and out of Judah shall come the word of the lord and i look at the gathering of the northern kingdom as they were 
scattered to all the different nations and the Syrians were pulling people in from all the different four corners and, and teaching them how to worship the Lord there. And, and that gathering was a gathering of all of the different nations that was right before the gathering of Judah, who's later scattered and brought back into the land. I look at the United States and, and I look at all of the different people coming in here as a melting pot and, and being taught to, to, to come here for religious freedom, but, but also coming here and, and trying to, to worship the God of this land, if you will. And the greatest export that the United States has had in all of its history is the Constitution, the law. That law has gone to all of the different countries of, of the world. And so I almost look at the, the U.S. as a modern-day Israel and Judah as an ancient Israel. And you look at what the greatest export of Judah, Israel, has been is the Bible, the, the religion, Judaism, Christianity. And even the Bible is has had a large role to play in Islam and the, the people of the book. And I I look at that and I see... The, the law of the Lord and the word of the Lord and this idea of a, a, a hope in the last days of this is the restoration that, that God has planned. That's really great insight. <clears throat> Man, I didn't know how to pronounce any of these people's names, but this has been a, an amazingly insightful podcast for me. I, I hope so. It's um, for sure. They're kind of small little books, but they're... I mean, amazing profits. And we got some Amy Grant and some Hunt for the Wilder People, so this is great. <laughs> I love it. Anything else? I th- I think that's all I got. It's Perfect. probably a little shorter this week. That's great. I mean, just nice, right to the point. Um, what do we uh, What are we talking about next week? Haggai and I believe Zechariah, because I think it's just those two prophets and leaves us with Malachi at the end. I'm excited for Malachi. I like that book. I got thoughts on that book. I can't wait to hear your and thoughts I can on that pronounce book. Malachi. Malachi. Um, thank you for listening, everybody. Um, please feel free to email us questions or comments. We really appreciate your feedback. Hi at weeklydeepdive.com is how to get a hold of us. Again, if you um, enjoy the podcast and don't mind jumping on and giving us um, a five-star review. It really does help kind of push the algorithm and helps uh, kind of spread what it is that we're trying to do um, to as many people as possible. Uh, Thank you again so much for listening. Until next week, see ya. See ya.